text for the sermon this morning is Mark chapter 14, the verses 43 to 50. Mark 14, starting at verse 43, and immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. After the sermon, we will respond by singing together hymn 25, the stanzas 2, 5, and 7. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the closer that we get to the account of the cross, the harder the narratives of scripture are to read and to process. And that's not in the sense that these accounts are hard to understand, but it's because of the suffering that they so describe in detail. We know that the suffering of our Savior came to its great climax on the cross but we also do well not to underestimate how great his suffering was leading up to that point. It's also what we confess in the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 15, that during all the time that he lived on earth, but especially at the end, Christ bore in body and soul the wrath of God against sin. Well, it's here, in the Garden of Gethsemane, that the intensity of his suffering really begins to grow. It's here in the Garden of Gethsemane that we find his prayer in which he asks his father to take this cup of wrath away from him if it were possible. We also know from other Gospels that during this time in Gethsemane, Jesus would sweat like drops of blood after which an angel would come to attend to him. Well, with the words of our text this morning, we see how his suffering continues to increase. Jesus is confronted directly by those whose goal it is to arrest him and to take him into custody. And yet, congregation, if you look at our text, then you'll see that before us in this text lies a whole large number of unidentified people. You have the crowd of people that comes to arrest Jesus, but they're all nameless. They're all faceless. You have the servant of the high priest who is struck by one standing near. Again, no names, no faces, 
no identification here. And yes, we know from other Gospels more about the details, including a few names. But it's important that we're careful not to immediately bring those details in here. Because Mark, the Gospel writer, inspired by the Holy Spirit, has a particular message for us through his lack of detail. If you look at the text, then you'll see that there are only two who are directly named. The first, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's at the center of the whole account. But the other one named is Judas Iscariot, the disciple known throughout history as the one who betrayed his master for a mere 30 pieces of silver. We can also see that attention is given in the text to the disciples, the other 11. And there's no need to name these other 11 because the reality is that here in this account, their actions don't promote their own reputation at all. Instead, they serve only to intensify the suffering of our Savior. And so with the attention placed in those three directions, Jesus Christ, Judas, and the other 11 disciples, I proclaim to you the word of God under the following theme. With his arrest, Jesus Christ is abandoned by his disciples. And this abandonment is shown through the betrayal of Judas and through the flight of the eleven. Now the first words of our text indicate that these events were happening at a very rapid pace. Jesus is still speaking to his disciples. He's telling them that the time has come to meet the betrayer. And likely as the disciples heard him say this, there would be this, this sense of apprehensive anticipation. After all, right before the institution of the Lord's Supper, the Lord had plainly told his disciples that one of them was going to betray him. You read that in Mark 14, verse 18. Well, out of morbid curiosity, the disciples would want to know who among them would dare to betray their beloved master. And no doubt, as they thought about such things, they were also filled with righteous indignation, thinking about what they would do to such a person. But they didn't have to wait long to find out who the betrayer was. Because while Jesus is still speaking in the Garden of Gethsemane, this betrayer shows himself. But behind him, there's this crowd of people. Their goal is to arrest Jesus. But they're led by Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve. That's how Mark identifies him in verse 43. He says he's one of the twelve. And we wonder why Mark would introduce Judas in this way. After all, if we've read the Bible, we know that Judas is one of the twelve. It seems to be obvious. But there is a good reason that the Holy Spirit inspires Mark to introduce Judas in this way. And that is to indicate the horrible nature of these actions that Judas is doing. For brothers and sisters, you will agree that being betrayed is always a terrible thing. But there is still a great difference in being betrayed by someone you don't know compared to being betrayed by someone you do know very well. Being betrayed by someone you know well involves the breaking of trust and fellowship. It carries with it this awful feeling of rejection and deception 
and there is no going back from such an action. Such a relationship can never again be restored. The one being betrayed feels used, feels manipulated. Being betrayed by someone you know, it carries with it this very powerful and dark feeling of hurt. And there are psalms that speak about such betrayal as well. You can think about Psalm 41 verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. As you hear those words, you can't help but think about what our Savior is experiencing here. In Psalm 41, David says that being betrayed by a close friend is like being stomped into the dirt with a heel, treated with great disdain. You can also think about Psalm 55, verse 20. My companion stretched his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. We sang the rhyme version of this just a moment ago. Again, there's that deep sense of pain that goes along with such a betrayal. And David speaks here about violating a covenant. Well, that's what man does with every sin. With every sin, man violates the covenant that God has established. Or if we want to give a human example, you could think about the marriage covenant, where one partner betrays the other. With such an action, there's a deep sense of hurt, there's pain, and it's to the point that it's not easily reversed. Well, by identifying Judas here as one of the 12 disciples, Scripture makes it clear the horrific nature of his actions. Judas had a close personal relationship with the Lord Jesus. Judas followed Jesus for three years during his public ministry. So close was Judas that he was the treasurer among the disciples. He cared for the money bag. And yet he's still the one who betrays his master to those who wish to kill him. And he does it all for 30 pieces of silver. As we think about it, we can't help but think, how, how horrible, how despicable, how low do you have to go in order to do such actions? But scripture has more to say here because it also notes how Judas is referred to in verse 44. In verse 43, he's called one of the twelve. But in verse 44, he's no longer called by his first name. He's simply called the betrayer. It's the last time in Mark's gospel that Judas would be referred to. In the end, the only way he would be remembered is as the one who betrayed the Lord Jesus into the hand of the enemy. That's the last memory Mark gives us of this covenant violator. And yet the Bible still has more to say about his actions. More to say about the intensity of Jesus' suffering at this point. Since the betrayer and this crowd came in the night to arrest Jesus, there would have to be a way to know how to arrest the right person. There were no street lamps at the time. 
The only light that would exist would come from the moon. And if, things, if the moon was overcast, you wouldn't have any light at all. So there had to be a way to identify who to arrest. And the betrayer had that figured out. He'd plotted exactly how he would betray his master. He tells the crowd he'll give them a sign for who to arrest, and it will be the man that he kisses. So when the betrayer and the crowd come to the garden, then immediately he goes to Jesus, and he shows by his action the deception and the ugliness that's living in his heart. He goes right to Jesus, and addressing him as rabbi or teacher, he kisses him. So there's no mistake then for the crowd who is the one to be arrested. wickedness of the betrayer piles up even higher. He uses an address of respect. He pretends to humble himself. He pretends to be submissive to his teacher. And he uses a sign of affection as the sign of betrayal. And when it came to the kiss of betrayal, the word in the Greek makes it clear that this was not just a little, little tiny kiss. This was an affectionate kiss. There was nothing quick, there was nothing half-hearted. It was an outward display of true affection. But inwardly, there was only scorn and hatred for the master. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, betrayed into the hands of his enemies by one who was close to him. He was openly rejected and abandoned happened in a most horrible way by one of his own disciples. His intensity of suffering increases because if you cannot count on those who are close to you in times of suffering, then who exactly can you count on? And the deep pain of betrayal pierces even deeper when it comes from a friend who sat at the table and ate bread with you only hours before. And brothers and sisters, make no mistake about it, the betrayer knew exactly what he was doing. He knew that the enemy wanted Jesus destroyed. In Mark 14, verse 1, we read how the chief priests wanted to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. In verse 10 of this chapter, the betrayer goes to those same chief priests and he promises to hand Jesus over to them. So we can say all we want about this crowd that comes to arrest our Savior, but without the help of the betrayer, they would have never known where to look at this time. They would have been grasping about like blind men in the dark. Only because of this betrayer could they carry out their mission. Once they've arrested Jesus, the betrayer makes it clear that he wants him led away under guard. We read that in verse 44. Literally, the text says that he wanted Jesus taken away securely. He didn't want Jesus to have any opportunity to escape custody, because only if Jesus stayed captured would he be able to keep his 30 pieces of silver. If Jesus would escape, all of that would be taken from him. So the betrayer had a vested interest, not just in leading the crowd to Jesus, but making sure everything got followed through right to the bitter end when Jesus was on trial before the high priest and the Sanhedrin. And what it 
means is that to the betrayer, money was more important than the master. His own life here on earth was more important than the kingdom of God. And in that, brothers and sisters, there is a very strong warning for us. Because this one who betrayed Jesus, he was not just a random person who had a bit of trouble with Jesus' teaching. He was one who followed Jesus for three years. He was one who listened to the words of the teacher, but he never truly let himself be instructed by them. We can sit, we can hear the word of God every week, read and proclaimed, but if we don't make it our own through faith, then it will never take root in our hearts and lives. Without making Christ our own by faith as the Lord of our life, then what we're actually doing is we're giving Satan and his demons the room they need to come in and to set up shop. We open ourselves to being put in the same uh, position as the betrayer. And while we may not betray the Savior to the enemy, what we do is we deny him with our words and with our actions, for which the punishment is that he will deny us before the Father and his angels. The word of God is not just there to be listened to. It's meant to be taken in. It's meant to be made our own through faith. We need to put the Spirit's work in our hearts into practice. Because only then do we give the enemy no room in our life. Only then do we confess by our words and our actions that Jesus Christ is truly the Lord of life. The one to whom we submit. The one whom we follow with all our heart. And we acknowledge him as the one who by his suffering and death has reconciled us with God. Only by making Christ our own through faith do we really show that this glorious truth actually does mean something for us. said earlier that the betrayer knew exactly what he was doing but he wasn't the only one because the Lord Jesus also knew what was happening here At the end of our text he says that all these things must happen so that scripture is fulfilled and God's word proven to be true Jesus had predicted that his betrayal was going to happen and so rather than fighting back he submitted himself to the shame and humiliation and the pain and he did so because he knew that this was the way God had chosen for him to end up at the cross. He knew that he had to go even deeper into suffering so that he could pay for our sin. And that is striking, congregation. Because as bad as this suffering and injustice was being betrayed by a friend... It still wasn't enough to make the full payment for sin that God required. God used this pain. God used this suffering laid on our Savior to bring his son even to further suffering, which would culminate on the cross. And Christ willingly subjected himself to all of this so that he would end up at the cross for our benefit. 
Holy Spirit also gives us this account of the betrayal of our Savior so that we recognize the depth of his suffering, so that we're humbled by what he endured for our sake because he took upon himself all the suffering that we tried to avoid at all costs. He was willing to accept being betrayed by a friend. And we come now to our second point. that we have here in our text tells us how his suffering became even worse because not only is he betrayed by one of his own disciples but the other 11 aren't much support for him either there's only one feeble attempt to resist what's happening there's only one who stood near that drew his sword to retaliate but that's it nothing more There's nothing about the other ten joining in this resistance. It's only one little small attempt that had no effect at all. And so small it was that the one swinging his sword is not even named here. Both the attacker and the victim are kept anonymous so that the focus remains on our Lord and Savior. And yet, brothers and sisters, that does not mean that the eleven disciples were justified in fleeing from their teacher. Because if we look at our text, then we see how Jesus reacts to this crowd that came to arrest him. He doesn't cower before them, groveling and begging for mercy or pity. No, Jesus rebukes this crowd. Jesus exposes this crowd for the cowards that they are. In verse 48, we read, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Well, the Greek word used for robber here can simply refer to a a regular thief or a bandit, but it can also refer to one who leads a political rebellion. And it's better to understand it in that way, because to arrest a simple robber would never take this great crowd of people so heavily armed. But to arrest an important political prisoner, someone who may fight back with his followers in the rebellion, that would take much more force. And that's how Jesus says this crowd is acting. As though he's this great leader of a political rebellion. They're saying he's a dangerous criminal. One who should be approached with all caution. In fact, he shows them just how ridiculous they are behaving. Then he goes another step further. Because he exposes how cowardly they are as well. Verse 49 of our text, he says, Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. So the Lord plainly says to them that they could have arrested him at any time in the past, but they chose not to because they were afraid of the crowds. They were afraid that the people would resist and fight back. And so they come in the darkness of night, sneaking and cowardly rather than taking open responsibility for their actions. The ones who are afraid of the crowds now make use of a crowd to arrest this so-called dangerous political criminal. And the disciples are right there. 
They hear everything that the Lord Jesus says to this crowd. They hear how he exposes the cowardice of the crowd. They hear how he exposes their fear of the popular opinion. And it means that the disciples have every reason to step up, to push back. After all, the last thing that this crowd sent by the Sanhedrin wants is a big scene. Especially an open battle, even with bloodshed involved. But rather than walking by faith in the Son of God, rather than believing what he spoke in their presence, they act in fear and unbelief. And each one of them flees. What we read in verse 50. In the Greek, there's a very ominous feel to these words. Literally, the text reads, and abandoning him, they fled all. That word all, it's placed last in the sentence for emphasis. There was not a single one who remained. For all the 11 disciples, that crowd was big and God was small. Their fear of the crowd was greater than their trust in God. And it means, brothers and sisters, that the Lord Jesus Christ was left completely alone. There was no one left to support him or to comfort him. And such things are natural human desires. All people desire human contact and human fellowship. All people need human support and comfort from others, especially in times of great difficulty. And bearing our human nature, the Lord Jesus was no different. He had that same desire for human support. But all those to whom he would look for such support had fled away in fear. There was no one left. Again, the Lord Jesus was not surprised by this either, because he said immediately before the eleven fled that the scripture had to be fulfilled. And he's speaking here of that passage we read together from the prophecies of Zechariah. We also read how Jesus quoted from that prophecy when he spoke about the abandon, when he predicted what would happen to his disciples. But what he predicted happens here in our text. The shepherd of the sheep was struck, and rather than defending the shepherd, each one of the sheep ran away. They fled, more worried about their own safety. And because most of us know this account well. We're not surprised by this. But we have to remember that when Christ had predicted these events to his disciples, they had all said that they were willing to die with Jesus. All of them said it. There was no exceptions. We read that in Mark 14, verse 31. Well, now here in our text, they show exactly how reliable their word really is. Because rather than being willing to die with Jesus, they all fled to save their own life. And it's hard to consider, it's hard to really grasp the reality that our Lord Jesus Christ suffered alone. It's painful. But it's important to realize, congregation, that what we have here in our text is nothing new. It's actually a repeat of history. There was one other time in history when man fled from God in the garden. Most of us know the story well. It was immediately 
after man fell into sin and ran away from God rather than walking with God. Man tried to hide rather than having fellowship with the Creator. That was in the Garden of Eden. Well, here in the Garden of Gethsemane, man once again runs away from God. But this time there's something different. This time it was not an immediate result of the fall into sin and a sense of shame because of sin. This time it was the result and the consequence of all sin. Yes, all sin. And that includes the sin of each one of us here this morning. Because at this time, God was preparing to lay all our sins on his only son. And as he did so, there could be no one left to comfort our Savior. There could be no one to support our Redeemer as he suffered for our sake. Not even an angel from heaven would come to help him. Jesus Christ was completely abandoned by all his followers. As he went on trial, there was no moral support for him. God continued laying even greater suffering on his son, and he did it all with a purpose. It was so that the fellowship from which man first fled in paradise might once again be restored. In the Garden of Gethsemane, God begins a new stage of fixing what man destroyed in Eden. By having his own son abandoned by all human companions, God restored the fellowship man broke by sin. And also through his suffering of complete abandonment, our Savior is bearing the suffering that we deserve to endure. Because the reality is, sin causes brokenness in relationships. And we know that well. Many of us experience it for ourselves. Not only has sin broken the relationship between God and man, but it's broken the relationship between people as well. You can think about Adam and Eve in the garden. Rather than together confessing their sin to God, Adam laid all the blame for this whole ordeal at the feet of his wife Eve. And she in turn laid all the blame before the serpent. There was now brokenness in the good relationship that God had established. And it's that brokenness that our Savior experiences in the most painful way here in Gethsemane. Being abandoned by all those who are closest to him. That's exactly what we deserve. We deserve difficulties. We deserve struggles because of our sin and our wickedness. But that is the last thing that the Son of God deserved. By experiencing that great form of suffering, He's taking our suffering upon Himself, and He's taking it all the way to the cross so that we might once again live in fellowship. And that includes fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. Because yes, there is still brokenness, there's still betrayal, there is still hurt. But there is also forgiveness and reconciliation obtained by Christ on the cross. By his precious blood, he brings us together as the family of the faith so that we might experience communion with one another. It's this communion that we experience at the Lord's Supper. It's fellowship that we may enjoy every day again. And it is not a natural fellowship that's just part of who we are by nature. 
We have it because our Savior gave it to us. As the family of the faith, we together rejoice that Jesus Christ has borne our suffering and pain, that he suffered complete abandonment for our sakes, so that we would never experience such circumstances, whether in this life or in the life to come. And we have to consider that perspective as well. Because if you take out the work of Christ, then there is no fellowship. Not here today, not, not in eternal punishment either, which is exactly where everyone would go without Christ. The truth is that in hell, there will not be harmonious relationships. There will not be support and comforting one another as the wrath of God is poured out. There will only be loneliness with the weeping and gnashing of teeth. No one will be looking out for the other. Each will be focused on their own misery and their own suffering. And when you think about it from that perspective, then you really begin to see the riches of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. Then you see more clearly the great joy of what we have together as the family of the faith. All that fellowship that we destroyed by sin, it's been repaired by the Son of God on the cross. And that gives us every reason to pursue that fellowship today, both fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. By binding us together with the blood of His Son, God has replaced the abandonment caused by our sin, and in its place He's put in the communion of saints. So by not doing our part to respond in faith and to seek out the unity of the faith, this harmony and this peace within the communion of saints, what we're actually saying is that we prefer the abandonment we deserve because of sin rather than the peace and harmony our Savior obtained for us. What we now have today by the grace of God is a communion that we may rejoice in. A communion that we may enjoy already now as we prepare to experience the fullness of that communion in eternity. Because eternity is the direction that God is bringing all things. There in eternity, we will have perfect fellowship with God and we will have perfect fellowship within the family of the faith. In eternity, it will be paradise restored in which all God's people of all ages and places will together rejoice in our Lord and live in perfect harmony forever.